Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks for joining us here for episode 577 with David LaBelle. David is talking about how to stay calm and productive in the midst of uncertainty, whether that's the particular uncertainty we're in now or just the general discomfort of simply speaking up. So you'll learn, one, simple but powerful ways to ease your anxiety, two, the surprising cost of leaving things unsaid, and three, a handy script for when you need to disagree. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we've referenced, do visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP578. And while you're there, you might sign up for the Gold Nugget emails, which gives you summary insight from David and every guest who's gone before him. In an email, as each episode comes out, you can read in about three minutes, as well as access to that whole vault. That's called the Gold Nuggets at awesomeatyourjob.com. Now, here's David's story. Dave LaBelle is an award-winning teacher and researcher currently serving as Assistant Professor of Business Administration at the Joseph M. Katz Graduate School of Business at the University of Pittsburgh. David has received multiple teaching awards and was the highest-rated professor at the Katz School During the 2017-2018 academic year, his research focuses on proactive behaviors at work, including voice or speaking out, innovation, and taking initiative. Dave received a BS in economics, an MS in management, and a PhD in organizational behavior from the Wharton School of Business at the University of Pennsylvania. Prior to pursuing his PhD, he was a management consultant with Deloitte, providing strategy and operations expertise to public sector clients and an analyst for a large $15 billion privately held supply chain organization. Big thanks to David for sharing his wisdom with us. And big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. And big thanks to our sponsor, Acorns. Acorns makes it easy to start automatically saving and investing for your future. You don't need a lot of money or expertise to invest with Acorns. In fact, you can get started with just your spare change. Acorns recommends an expert-built portfolio that fits you and your money goals, then automatically invests your money for you. NerdWallet.com, whom I love on these sorts of matters, gives Acorns a whopping 4.7 stars and says, quote, if you want to make the most of your spare change, there's no better place to do that than Acorns. Head to acorns.com slash awesome or download the acorns app to start saving and investing for your future today and we got a legal disclaimer here it may not be representative of all clients tier one compensation provided compensation provides an incentive to positively promote acorns view important disclosures at acorns.com awesome investing involves risk including the loss of principal please consider your objectives risk tolerance and acorns as fees before investing acorns advisors llc acorns is an sec registered investment advisor brokerage services are provided to clients of acorns by acorn securities llc member finra slash sipc for more information visit acorns.com Here is David. Dave, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Thanks. I really appreciate being here. Looking forward to uh, talking with you this afternoon. Oh, well, I'm looking forward to it as well. And and I think we're going to have a lot of good chats about being proactive and and facing fear and speaking up and initiative and and all that. But I understand your initial uh, entree into the world of work uh, was, was not quite as illustrious. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah. So right after graduating from business school, I got my first job with a large wholesale grocer. And it was a relatively typical job in the sense that it was like a business analyst. I was going to be an internal consultant helping them solve problems. But I remember going on my first day of work, having like an orientation, having a good day. At the end, they said, uh, we have a present for you. And I said, well, and we opened it up and it was a box of steel-toed boots. And we were like, what is this for? You know, they said, uh, you're going to be working in the warehouse for three weeks. And we had had some inkling that we were going to be doing some stuff in the warehouse, but we didn't know we'd be 
working in the warehouse, like on the shop floor. So we actually worked uh, the night shift for three weeks. Uh, and it was 9 p.m. to 7 a.m. because that's when you do most of the distribution for groceries. And it was a large wholesale grocer, did most of the distribution for New England and Pennsylvania and grocery stores. So most of those trucks go out in the middle of the night. So we were working night shifts and we had to pick cases. So you, you're in this gigantic warehouse and you had to go up and down the aisles riding on these like scooter things and picking cases of cereal and snacks and putting them on a pallet and then getting them ready to go on the truck. And I remember getting made fun of the, the workers would say, you know, I had computer hands because I would get calluses all over. <laughs> and so I, it impressed my, my uh, girlfriend and now wife at the time. I guess it was a little bit blue collar, you know, like the, this, this tough guy. And, and it was just a really interesting time because I remember me and my roommate and colleague at the time, we'd finish our shift about 6.30, 7 o'clock in the morning. And we'd uh, get dinner at the all-you-can-eat buffet at the hotel. We'd watch the opening of the stock market at like 8, 8.30 and we go to bed and then repeat, you know. So I was this hotshot business school graduate, you know, ready to solve problems. And here I was working on the shop floor for three weeks, but it taught me so much about the entire business. And then when I worked in bro procurement months later, I could talk to the warehouse guys much easier and totally understand what, what their perspectives and like jointly solve problems that way. So it actually ended up being a great way for me to see the entire organization and then proactively come up with ideas. Because in procurement, I could say, hey, look, we could do this, but that's going to be an issue for the warehouse guys. Maybe we should do it this way where we both can gain. Just seeing the whole organization, it actually ended up being a great first job for many ways. Well, well that is cool. And I, I really dig uh, sort of forward thinking organizations that, that go there as well as, you know, humble people who like, oh, uh, excuse me, <laughs> I have a fancy business school degree. Uh, so, so that's, that's cool. Now you've got a, a number of areas of expertise and uh, I, I'm really interested in talking a bit about fear and, and speaking up and having a touch of coronavirus influence when it comes to fear and workers in the mix. So can you orient us in terms of what are, what are you known for? What, what are you the expert in? Yeah, so I mean, I did my dissertation on different types of fear at work, especially in relation to speaking up. And we actually know quite a bit about this, and it's, it's very, very pervasive, leading people to remain silent. And you just see it now in the news. You speak up and someone gets fired, right? You see that at a very high level. And there's a lot of research on this, and it, it really almost comes from when we're, from our parents, you know, from little kids. Like, you're taught not to ask too many questions. And so there's some good research on showing that this, this type of fear gets started when we're very, very young, a fear of authority. So we don't want to challenge them, even when we're older. There's other concerns, like material concerns, just I don't want to lose my job. If I speak up, maybe my boss might demote me or, you know, even fire me. And so those are pretty heavy-rooted uh, fears, and those are very difficult to overcome. And, and I also did some research on, you know, external fears. And this is in a work setting. So fears of economic downturn impacting the organization, that would be very relevant now. Like, let's say if you're working in a startup restaurant, you know, that might be fighting for survival. You might need, you're looking out at all these external problems going on, loss of consumers, and you might actually speak up with ideas to help go about that. And that's what my dissertation was on. And I found that when leaders really were supportive or when employees really identified with the organization, meaning they kind of saw the organization uh, themselves as one with the organization, they spoke up more even despite those external fears, those fears of losing business. I mean, that was kind of like the novel contribution because we know that fear often just 
really shut down voice. And so I was looking for some instances when, you know, a certain type of fear, employees might overcome that and still be able to speak up. That's intriguing. So then it's the notion that when when you identify with the business or the organization, the employer workplace, then you're more likely to experience, you know, those butterflies or tingles or manifestations of fear and and say that it's worth it. I'm going to speak up because it's kind of like, I guess I'm speculating, you you fill me in. It's sort of like, this is a part of me, like the the performance of this organization, what we're doing, what we're up to is is something that I genuinely care about. And and so thusly, I am willing to make a bit of a, a risk or a sacrifice to to support it. Is, is that kind of the, the mechanism there or how would you articulate it? Yeah, no, I think that's a good way of articulating it. I, kind of what I was thought about in my dissertation was more about protecting the organization, right? And so fear, when we feel fear, we're protecting something, mostly ourselves. And what that identity was doing was making it more outward, protecting the organization. And the same thing with, with supportive uh, supervisors. They were helping the employees, at least I was speculating that they were, the supportive supervision helped the employees take that fear channel it, move it away from an internal focus and think about ways to channel the fear towards protecting the larger entity, could be a team or the organization. Well, yeah. So so let's maybe zoom out and, and talk about the experience of fear for workers more broadly in, in terms of kind of what's what's behind it. So we're looking to protect something often often ourselves. And then if if we're feeling fear and, and, and let's let's talk about the coronavirus context, like you think, uh-oh, I don't know if I'm gonna be stricken with an illness, or if someone I, I love and care about will be stricken, or if uh, my my job is still gonna be there, or if I'm gonna get the government support, or I'm not gonna get the government support, or I'm gonna start, but it's gonna dry up. So uh, it, in a in a world of, of high fear and uncertainty, how do we deal? Yeah, it, it's really tough because, you know, a lot of our first reactions with protection are kind of very rigid, opposite of what you want during these times to be able to adapt. I mean, and that's just a, a natural thing. We, When we get fearful, we constrict our focus. We narrow our focus of attention. And sometimes that's very good if you already have an existing habit or routine to deal with the situation. But in this case, it's not happening because we all have to develop completely new routines, right? We're working from home. Uh, we have kids at home during work. We, and so your routine is completely disrupted. So this makes it really, really difficult. And I think, you know, for me, even just starting at a basic level, simple things like just even articulating, I'm afraid, you know, I'm afraid of something. I'm afraid of, what is it, losing my job, coming down with the virus, of being depressed, of, could even be I'm afraid of not seeing my coworkers, friends, family for a period of time. And I think it may seem like a, such a small step, but articulating it, you know, th there are different protective measures that you need for each of those different types of fear. And, and so, I, you know, fear can be adaptive when you start to think about what it is and what's appropriate for the situation and how you might be able to protect yourself or, you know, in some ways, if you turn it outwards again, and I think I'll use that, that a lot today, thinking about maybe I don't have to focus on my work. Maybe I can focus on protecting my kids, right? And just making sure that they're safe and that they're happy, right? And I think that's something to do. And, and, if, and if you're alone working at home, I think if it's work-focused, just develop some sense of efficacy. That's another way to overcome fear. And so take something that you're very good at, you know, start off with one goal a day and accomplish it. You know, and again, it might seem very small, but just that small act of, of accomplishing something, feeling like I did something today, uh, recognizing that you are good at something, I think that can help at least temporarily distract you from those fears 
and it's like small wins, like goal setting, small wins, do a little bit each day and kind of build the pile. And I, and I got to admit, and especially, you know, for your listeners, and I teach this stuff, you know, I've in this situation, I found it very hard. I'm literally now on my desk have like kind of lists of just start small, small wins, one thing a day, and then kind of check that off. And it feels good to check it off, you know, and then, you know, I started to work earlier today. And then by 830, I was basically done with that task, you know, and I felt really good about that. And so I was like, well, maybe I'll add that to my routine, like start work a little bit earlier and then go the kids with their lessons for a little bit. A lot of powerful, actionable stuff for you to write off the the bat there in terms of so the fear bubbles up when there's something sort of at risk, like a, a loss may occur, loss of job, loss of income, loss of health, loss of fun times, you know, seeing, seeing friends, family, and, and, and sort of that is kind of what's behind fear. And thusly, we want to respond via protection, taking a protective action. And so one tool is to just, you know, kind of shift the focus on, on who and what we're protecting. Another tool is to just uh, identify it, articulate it clearly. I'm afraid of this. It's sort of unmasked. And, and then you can look at it straight on. And another one is to efficacy, just sort of get something done and, and, and feel good about what, what you're capable of and, and, and how, you're, how you're working. So that's, those are some great tools, you know, right off the bat. And then in the particular context of, of speaking up, you know, it, it, it's like, are there extra considerations there in terms, or is it all just sort of like the same guidelines apply? So overcoming fears of speaking up? Right. So you, you, you have an idea, you think, mm, you know, this is going to maybe be upsetting to someone. It's a different perspective. It could make me seem out there or dumb or uh, offensive, you know, to the, the big boss who has the opposite point of view. How do we manage that? Yeah, so I'll start with what I think is the most intriguing way to overcome your fears of speaking up, and then I'll, I'll kind of back into some of the more, what I think are the more smaller steps. But the, the first one I think is another negative emotion, actually anger, one. And so I, I'm taking it outside of the context of coronavirus here. I'm talking about work settings here. A lot of times in anger, maybe at an injustice or mistreatment, is something that can really fuel overcoming fear and almost put it almost completely aside. But again, there, it almost ties to something bigger, like some sort of sense of injustice or, or mistreatment. And that is something that can often overcome that, uh, can overcome the fears of speaking up. The caution there, of course, is if it, the impetus is a, a negative emotion, you may not communicate your idea very well, especially in a work setting. So there, you know, it's like, am I, am I going to blow up about this in the meeting? You know, and, and kind of the better way might be to regulate that emotion in the sense of, you know, recognize that you have it, table it completely, but think about a better channel or a better time, you know, especially maybe one-on-one as opposed to a meeting. And so it's not easy to do, but anger can often provide the fuel. And it's really effective if the person has some, you know, control over that emotion. So there's always a caveat there. So that's one thing is, you know, when you see things, and I think I encourage people when they see things at work that they know aren't right, I mean, use that, recognize that, again, label it. And so that might help you, because you're probably going to be weighing, well, will the boss get mad at me? But use the anger as an indicator that there's probably something strong here and worth speaking up about. Maybe not right now in the moment, but maybe shortly thereafter, or maybe with the help of someone else, maybe form a coalition or something like that. But use that anger kind of productively as an indicator emotion that that there's something wrong that needs to be addressed. That's great. Well, hey, there's there's one. Uh, Keep it coming. Lay it on us. (laughs) 
I mean, for some other ones, I mean, there are some people who can just, again, develop an ability for this. You know, I find myself either, if I know it's going to be a contentious issue and I'm afraid about it, it's almost like giving a speech. It's not the length of a speech, but it's just for two minutes kind of hearing the idea play out, even for myself. I mean, I'll use my wife, trusted coworkers, just to hear it. So it's not all inside your head, because if it's all inside your head, that's usually how anxiety gets there. So just hearing yourself kind of articulate what you want to say can be really helpful because when you get in the meeting, and it may not be even like a big issue, but when you're in the meeting and you start to say, well, maybe, oh, you know, now's not a good time. It's, I'm too nervous. You know, if you've already practiced it, the likelihood is much greater that you actually follow through on it. So just hearing yourself speak that morning, the night before, on your commute to work will greatly increase the likelihood that you have the courage to speak up when the time comes. Yeah. Okay, I like that. Well, well, we jumped right into the how because uh, I got so excited. Maybe I should uh, take a step back and, and establish the why. Um, you know, being afraid isn't isn't so pleasant. But could you really paint a picture in terms of what is the cost uh, of this fear in terms of lost productivity or great ideas that are not shared or uh, dissenting opinions that could preempt very bad decisions <laughs> from being made but weren't made? Like, it's, I'm sure it's a stagger. I don't even know how you would begin to estimate that. But you know, w- what's your sense of just what's at stake here? with regard to uh, fear and not speaking up and, and what it's costing all of us. I mean, you can go down so many examples in, in history, you know, like recently coronavirus, healthcare rollout a couple years ago, examples of war where, where, you know, soldiers weren't listened to about issues. So there's some really, really important stuff. And then at work, I mean, I, this is one, I think one of the most important things, you know, lost productivity, things like mistreatment at work go unaddressed because people aren't willing to speak up. And I understand, uh, you know, having been an employee for many years myself, having been in academia where I find myself many times saying, you know, I'm not going to speak up until I get tenure or until I have a protection, you know, so I'm very well aware of all of these things, but, you know, I think the organization really suffers. And, and a lot of times I end up speaking up because I realize that I'm suffering. You know, even if somebody else is being affected, I just don't want to see somebody else treated that way. And I think, you know, you find, again, for me, one thing, again, it's turning it outwards to realize it's not just about me, it's about something bigger. And I think people plead with people out there to have the courage to speak up or at least share the idea with others to maybe hear others tell you that, yeah, you really need to speak up about this, or maybe they're willing to speak it up on your behalf. So go through channels. So there's a caution here. Go to your peers for feedback. A lot of times that can lead to just kind of complaining about it. So there's some good studies that just going to your peers leads to very low quality voice. So I think you know, go to your peers for advice and say, hey, I really want to get your input on this. You know, you're a trusted confidant or you're an expert in this area and keep it about the idea. Because otherwise, a lot of times going to your peers can lead to just more complaining about the situation, right? And then you're just bitching about it for 20 minutes and then no one gets anywhere. But I think if you go to other people and get advice first, they may say, yeah, I'm facing the same thing. And then it becomes more powerful and even more important to speak up. Or you realize that you just strengthen numbers. Don't keep it inside your head. The anxiety will just get much greater if it just stays inside your head. The rational calculus of, is it worth me speaking up versus the benefits for others? If you stay inside your head, I'm going to guess that the fear and anxiety is going to overweigh that calculus most of the time. So I think just articulating 
it to other people and, and, and asking them about it can go a long way. Excellent. And I'd love to hear, you know, some success stories in terms of folks who were, were fearful or not speaking up and the organization and their own careers were being held back, but then they, they did something and made it happen. Could you, could you regale us with a tale or two of, of victory? I think a lot of good examples, maybe stick to some generic ones, but a lot of people find they start off in their careers and they spoke up a lot and then they get penalized in, in some way. And so they kind of go, go cold turkey and stop the other way. And there's this great book, Tempered Radicals, which kind of talks about striking the balance there. You can't, you know, it's an organization, there are norms and you can't just always completely challenge things. And so what people learn is kind of how to dissent, but within the intricacies of the system. And I think the ways to do that are, again, thinking about the organization, you know, thinking about why you're being affected, why you want to speak out first, start there, but also think about, well, is this my boss's idea? Is it in line with the organization's values or goals or metrics? How can I sell this issue a little bit better in line with the organization? And that's really where the success comes from. So I think if you say, even if it's a really big issue about turnover, about benefits or mistreatment, if you start off by saying, look, you know, I, I really care about the organization or I care about this team and we're, you know, high performing team, but we're really suffering lately because of this. And I'm, I'm seeing these issues and here are some suggestions that I have. You know, I think it's hard for most reasonable bosses and supervisors to argue with that and argue against that. So one thing, and this is advice for speaking up and being proactive, if you realize that it might be a challenging issue, well, one, always certainly raise problems, but come up with suggestions too. Like you have to do both, articulate the problem and present a suggestion, but also think about the perspective of the other side, how that might react and what's something that might be of interest to them. Your interest might be other focused, but you might lean on their self-interest, right? Uh, in pitching the idea by, you know, sticking to the bottom line or, or you're talking about the benefit to, you know, financial metrics. Yeah, yeah, I think there's some great principles. Can you can you bring them to life by, by hearing about someone who, who used it and saw something happen? Yeah, no, I think some good examples where I've always done this is where when I was a consultant, always start off by saying, this is something that the client's facing. And I almost put it through the eyes of the other person, right? You know, tell the story about the customer and the client. And I almost always had good responses from bosses and supervisors. And even the crazy story about someone who drag it was, it was some sort of disagreement and somebody said hey that's not right and, and so this is an advisor a mentor actually who got dragged out by the ear right into the other office but in the office they said look this is about my colleagues it's not about me and that ended up having a good resolution because it ended up being a crazy situation where speaking up led to anger on both sides and someone getting dragged into an office but in the end this focus on other people ended up leading to a solution afterwards. And eventually, after the, the boss, crazy boss kind of calmed down, led to uh, some success there. Oh, great. And so you, you mentioned some particular approaches and practices and principles in terms of thinking about their interests and, and such. I'd love it. Are there any particular words, phrases, scripts, bits of verbiage that uh, you've you found just tend to be very helpful again and again as you're playing this game? 
Yeah, I mean, I think the catchphrases, these may be very stock phrases, you know, things by saying, this just might be me, or, you know, this might come out of left field, or maybe I'm not the expert here. I think what you find is that, especially in interdependent contexts where we're all working together and the actions I take impact the other members of the team, they often, what you find is that people who hedge just a little bit, by hedging, I mean, use like disclaimers, use intonation when you speak for questions at the end, right? As opposed to making declarative statements, kind of hedge a little bit by taking the edge off at the end. You can use ums, maybes, stuff like that. And people in business tend to think, oh, I have to be powerful all the time. But sometimes with, with these types of issues that could raise conflict, it's good to use a little bit of hedges and qualifiers in your speech because that can kind of take the edge off and not create as much conflict with others. And if we are in more of a leadership influencer role, how can we encourage folks to have less fear of speaking up and speak up more often so we get the info we need to, to make great choices? Yeah, and one thing is just um, asking questions. If leaders sit down, if you're a manager and you're a leader and we're used to saying things, being assertive, trying to get our way, I mean, if you take a few minutes before a meeting and, and think about some questions you want to ask, I think most people, especially in the United States, who are very assertive and aggressive, it's actually not that easy to ask good questions. And so it actually takes a lot more thought. And so it takes some planning to think about what kind of information do I want to draw out? What kind of perspectives? What data do I need? And just doing that will, and I find this with myself, even when I'm teaching, that I'm often asserting rather than asking questions. And it always is the case that when I ask good questions, the conversation is much, much richer. And so I think as leaders, taking the time just to write out a few questions rather than you know, we're all used to what's the agenda for today? You know, here's what I want to accomplish in this meeting, adding some questions. And if you do that in every meeting, you're going to naturally get more communication, more feedback from people. So that would naturally spur voice. This number two, I think is, and I see this in parenting all the time, how you react to others' opinions and minor mistakes, right? And I see this with kids, but you see it with employees because the minute the boss kind of even has a little bit of a blow up with a minor mistake or someone else's opinion, even if you've built up a norm or a culture or you know, kind of a climate within a team that's one of speaking up, one misstep like that from the leader can really create the cascade of fear, not just among the person you were dealing with, but the whole team. So you have to be really careful about that and how you respond, because that's really a cue of psychological safety. You know, if the boss just blew up over this minor thing, you know, how is he or she going to handle even bigger issue, right? And then that will really flatten voice because they might think if I spoke about some little thing and I'm getting a ne negative reaction, no way am I going to speak up about something that I think might be of more consequence. Right. And I think that how to be awesome at your job listeners are so cool <laughs> and, and, and kind and generous and compassionate. I, I mean, I really, I genuinely, genuinely like all of you, which is cool. Uh, <laughs> some audiences are really weird. Uh, no offense, but ours is awesome. Anywho, so I think most of us are, are, you know, got things under control so that we're not going to start, you know, screaming or name calling or swearing. Uh, but I imagine there's also a lot of more subtle ways that uh, we can put the kibosh on, on psychological safety and, and foment uh, some more fear of speaking up. Can you, can you highlight a, a couple of things that maybe we don't even know that we're doing that we should cut out? Yeah, and I think even from my own experience, especially early on, it's actually not these over-the-top reactions, these extreme cases. It's really the more 
everyday mundane examples. And so I would speak up, you know, in that first job as a, as a business analyst, I'd have a lot of ideas for procedures, better technology. And my boss wasn't negative about it, but the boss, she was just like, okay, go ahead and just do it. Very quizzical. Like, I don't have a budget. You know, I, I'm, I'm, I, I'm like most of my coworkers are much older than I am. How do I have status with them? You know, how, how am I going to convince them? So it was that minor reaction that led me to stop speaking up because it wasn't that they were like yelling at me or getting angry. I didn't, there was no penalty, but they weren't really considering it. They were like, just go and do it. And I said, no, I, I kind of need your help with this. So the issue was responsiveness to it. And so I think in, in a meeting, the boss might not even realize that you cut off someone's opinion. Right. And so when you might reflect later on about that meeting, if you think like, you know, maybe I didn't respond to that, the boss or the supervisor should really say, well, maybe I should follow up with that person just to make sure and just say afterwards and take that extra step to say, you know, you were talking about this and maybe I didn't hear you. Let's hear a little bit more about that idea. Um, and I think because it's a lot more subtle than that. And I think a lot of times, even if you're not going to take action, following up on it. Because a lot of times you have lots of reasons and good reasons not to pursue an idea because you as the leader have a wider perspective. And so just communicate that because I think employees a lot of times don't hear that and they think that their idea just got thrown in the wastebasket. You know? And I think they just want to hear that it was at least considered and that goes a very, very long way. Yeah, that, is, that is a great point. And, and I think that might be counterintuitive to, to some leaders who think, oh, I don't want to dump on them. Like, Dave, let me tell you six reasons why that idea is not going to work. Uh, yeah, yeah, of course, there's, there's better ways you could do that. Like, hey, Dave, I really appreciate you bringing that up. I think that really would be effective in, in driving this particular result. You know, at this time, we're not going to move forward with it because of these, these other concerns, A, B, and C. Please keep it coming. And, and then I think that that benefits you as well because... You, you now have a greater contextual understanding of, of the broader situation. And so he's like, huh, okay, I didn't know that was the thing. Well, now that I do, you know, that's going to sharpen my, my subsequent ideas and, and considerations moving forward. And most employees just want to have good process. So a lot of times employees are much more motivated. They're much more satisfied just by hearing that you thought about their idea. A lot of times they, they understand that not everything can be implemented and changed. And so employees often when they're asked, they actually don't always care about the end result. Sometimes they do, but a lot of times it's just being heard that's enough for them, not the end change. So bosses can gain and supervisors, leaders can gain a lot of traction just by really taking extra time to communicate that you've listened, that you've heard, but also maybe not six reasons, but give a reason why you're not able to implement something. And that really helps keep up employee motivation, not just to speak up again, but their overall satisfaction at work. All right. Well, tell me anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things? No. And I, I think, I mean, well, one thing I wanted to say was for employees to be thinking about in these times, if they want to be proactive, you know, there's generally three types of performance, you know, adaptive and core task performance. So I think in these times where we're facing so many challenges, you know, focus on, I'm just going to assume this, your core tasks, right? Get those done first. But there are two other types of performance, you know, the proactivity part, which is the speaking up part and the adaptivity part. And I think that people are saying, should I still be proactive and doing all these things? And I'm not so sure. It requires a lot of energy to do these things, focus on the core tasks and also focus on the adaptation part, you know, especially during these times. And then maybe kind of look out into the future about what comes next. And so I think people nowadays, I'm still hearing 
talking to some coworkers and other even students, like should I be looking out into the future and being proactive? I'm not so sure in these current times. Normally I say yes, but under, you know, in these circumstances, we might not have the energy. Yeah, that's a great point. Like if you may not have the energy, yeah. If, I, if, I, if one of my colleagues said, Pete, I got 10 great ideas for how to optimize this podcast. I say, that's cool. Um, <laughs> maybe give me your favorite. <laughs> Or maybe begin evaluating those on your own, because uh, it is it, it's um it's kind of hard to, you know, nail the basics right now. <laughs> exactly. I mean, you might want to refrain from some of that more group oriented proactivity now. Focus on the self. I mean, if you're gonna put something proactive, make it skill development. You know, like Zoom training or something else like that, or some some learn some new technology. There, I would make it for the self. But I think some of these other behaviors that really help organizations and teams function. I think now just getting the baseline set up first and, and making sure you get your core tasks and adaptive. And I mean, I think especially for people who may be worried about you know, job insecurity or something like that. I think that's, you know, the best thing they can focus on is maybe think about those three different compartments of your job and focus on, you know, what's most important on a day-to-day basis. Excellent. Well, now could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? My favorite quote is, I have a mind that is open to everything, but attached to nothing. Wayne Dyer used that a lot. And I think it comes from Talopa, who's like an ancient monk. I really like that idea of a mind being open to lots of everything, but not attached to anything because I think you see leaders get attached to something or always feel the need to defend. And I see that in myself a lot. And I often reflect on how can I be more open-minded about things. And I think for the challenges that we face in most industries, regardless of the present times, just with changing technology and and increased competition, we need more open-minded thinkers. And how about a favorite study or experiment or bit of research? My favorite stuff before I even went into grad school was on psychological safety within teams. Amy Edmondson's work at, at Harvard, you know, at Harvard, and she did stuff with nurses and really important stuff that found when uh, nurses had higher levels of psychological safety, they were more likely to report errors uh, within hospital wards and units. That research also kind of looked at how teams functioned a lot better and could adapt and learn a lot better when they had psychological safety within teams. And so that kind of spurred my interest into speaking up and the topics of, of fear and how we might address those things. And how about a favorite book? Probably some that you've, you've heard uh, on the podcast, but definitely switch. I mean, there's always so many good things about how to change, again, how to adapt, how to lead change. You know, that book by the, the Heath brothers, I, I assign it and I, I'm always rereading it and re-highlighting things. And also the book, Deep Work, which is especially important now. I have it on my shelf to reread to get focused because it gives a lot of good habits for, for dealing with distraction, especially with social media, online, internet. Now being at home, it seems even harder to get away from uh, social media distractions and also to find a half hour, an hour of concentrated time. So Deep Work's another good book for tips on how to do that. All right. And how about a favorite tool, something you use to be awesome at your job? One thing that I found over the years, and you know, I'm a big person in terms of data, and I really like to be tracking things. So I have like a writing goal every day. And really what it is is like a goal setting chart. I remember over the last four to five years, it's actually not that easy to set a daily goal. You start to realize they're very broad at, at first. And you know, five years later, I think I'm finally good at setting very specific smart goals every day that are very actionable and, and concrete. And I have a bunch of different columns. I put it in an Excel spreadsheet 
and uh, track that daily. And at the end of the year, I always kind of analyze it. And it's, it's really, really helpful to both on a daily basis and at the end of the year reflect on some of that data because it can really, really uncover some personal trends about when I'm most productive, when I'm not, what's working and what's not. At the end of each year, I'm able to come away with two or three things that have really boosted my productivity, but also hindered it. And then that goes on my list of things to focus on for the next year. And it kind of creates a virtuous cycle. Ooh, but, you know, Dave, I could talk to you for an hour plus about a goal-setting spreadsheet, but I'm going to restrain myself, but got to get just a, a couple more details. So, all right. So what's the row? What's the column? What's the units? How's this unfold? The rows are just days by months because I'm teaching in certain terms and, and doing research. So each row is a day. Yeah. And then the columns are really, you know, I have a, a setting for uh, what's the goal for the day. And for me, it's how many words, the main metric is how many words I wrote. And going back to grad school, when I was struggling to complete the program and my dissertation, and I realized, what do I need to be doing more? And I was like, oh, I need to write a dissertation. And when I started to track it, I realized how little I was writing. And so that's been a major metric. And even, and it really helped me to realize it doesn't have to be good writing. It just needs to be writing. And so over the years, I've seen just a very strong increase in the amount of you know words uh, I write per day. And it showed over the last four years and how much I wrote in terms of book chapters and articles published. And it, you know, it's a really good you know, leading indicator of, of future performance, at least on my job. And, and then other things I've started to track, things that might be hindering that. And so like on a Monday, Monday is just lower. And I've always, you know, so I've, I've tried to institute routines on Sunday night to get better performance on Monday. So I, I start writing better. You know, I found that if I force myself to focus on two different projects and write about two things, obviously I'm writing more. It seems like a simple thing, but now I try to build in, I don't do that every day because I'll get burned out. But most days, two to three days out of a week, I try to say, okay, I need to be writing about two things. And then other aspects of my job, you know, I found that when I'm doing certain types of projects that are very particular to academia, but I realize that those are increasing or decreasing my productivity. So I've tried to shift some of the load so I can do more of those things that boost and, and kind of put my hand down and not sign up for those other things that might detract from that productivity. And how about a favorite habit? Well, that's, that's one of them. The other thing for me now is actually just mindfulness. I use the, the uh, Headspace app every day, even at work. You know, I'm, I'm not afraid to admit that I take five to 10 minutes to do you know, a mindfulness exercise, clear my head, do some breathing, because I found you know, I'm in knowledge work and I need the brain to be a little calm, quiet. And so I set a routine for that uh, every day, even at work. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? To my LinkedIn uh, profile, or just you can look me up at the Cat School of Business at the University of Pittsburgh. My email's on there. And really, I'm always happy to talk about these things. All right. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks looking to be awesome at their jobs? Uh, kind of what we talked about today. I find this when I'm talking to my students is, you know, have the courage to speak about these things. Oftentimes, if you're feeling the fear or some anger, they are very important to bring up whatever that topic might be. And so find the courage yourself. And it may not be you. It may not have to be you to speak up. Maybe it could be, you know, finding someone else who can hold the reins for you, somebody within your team or somebody with more uh, status or something like that. But I think we need that in these knowledge intensive industries that most of us work in now and the challenges that we face. We need to have a wider array of ideas and also dissent. It's okay to have dissent. It's, we're not always going to agree about things. So I, I challenge people to, to, to speak up more.
Well, Dave, this has been fun. I wish you lots of luck in, in all of your adventures and speaking up and courage and more. Thanks, Pete. I really appreciate this. Uh, thanks for the opportunity. I really appreciated Dave's little tip associated with when you're about to speak up and say something that uh, could be some dissent, some disagreement, you put a little preamble on it. And, and I, you know, watch yourself. You don't want to do that every time that you speak, or then you sort of seem not so confident and powerful in your presenting and what you believe in and your ideas. Uh, but when you're th- worried that something might be a little bit uh, edgy, disagreeable, dissenty, cause for concern with folks who don't know where it's going to land, I love those little preambles. And I, I will frequently you know, say things like, hey, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm only a podcaster. So from my perspective, I wonder about this. It's like, to what extent does this work? Uh, you know, just I think it's huge to take a moment and think not about whether you're going to say it and, and worry about it, but rather how you're going to say it. And a little bit of a preamble. I'm not an expert. I'm just trying to get the lay of the land here. I'm new here. You know, this might be a silly question, but one, one thing I don't quite understand yet, or maybe I overlooked, and maybe, I'm sorry, maybe you covered this in a previous meeting. It, could you just quickly bring me up to speed on, on this? You know, just a little something, something along those lines can really go a long way in diffusing some of the tension. So thanks for that, Dave. The show notes, the transcript, the links to items we've referenced are at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep578. If you haven't already, I hope you'll push subscribe. You'll catch our next guest. It's Keith Ferrazzi. That's right. Maybe you've heard of him. Never Eat Alone, Who's Got Your Back? He's got some more insights on leading without authority, building and deploying internal networks effectively to get stuff done in your organization through relationships. Hope to catch you there and peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.